Well, good morning. It's good to have you here. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 21 in our time together this morning. I'd like to introduce you to Pete Johnson. You say, who's that? Well, hold on and I'll tell you. Pete grew up in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, and if you're aware Lancaster, Pennsylvania is known for both Amish and Mennonite and very traditional kind of setting. Pete grew up in a Mennonite church where he didn't hear the gospel. Some, some Mennonite churches you do, some you don't. Just it's how that works. But he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he became connected with another Mennonite church that very, very clearly preached the gospel. No question about it. And he grew like wildfire. And that church grew like wildfire, largely attracting converts out of the Amish tradition and out of other more liberal Mennonite churches. Well, he became so excited that it was decided that they would have Pete actually church plant in Lancaster City, which isn't exactly as traditional as it is out in the rural area. But he was excited about the opportunity. So he moved into the city, started this church plant from the mother church, and things were going relatively well. A group of Mennonites had moved with him from the mother church who all had a heart for people to know and live the gospel. Great stuff. Well, if you know anything about kind of the Mennonite tradition, Typically, within a lot of those churches, more traditional, women only wear dresses and they tend to wear coverings on their head, right? And in some of the more conservative ones, even when they sing, it's a cappella. They don't even use instruments. It's, I mean, that's their tradition. So all of a sudden, they started this church in Lancaster City, and all kinds of people are coming to faith in Christ who have no Mennonite background at all. And so they don't have any of those kind of traditions. So Pete is trying to figure out how to bring all this together, you know, and and not lose what's central, but recognize different expressions. And somehow he, by God's grace, he pulled off that balance. So their their music was more blended. And so everybody kind of gave a little bit, but everybody respected everybody. It kind of worked. And you could come in on a church on a Sunday morning and you might look on one row and you might see a guy in a, in a suit and tie sitting beside a, his wife with a dress on with a head covering. And over here, a guy in shorts and flip-flops. Somehow, they were pulling it off. <laughs> Concern came, though, from the mother church, which had planted this church in Lancaster City. They, they had heard that there was some fudging of personal standards, you know? So they sent a delegation down from the mother church to kind of talk to Pete about this. And as they talked to Pete about it, they said, Pete, um, there's some issues here. Pete said, like, well, well like what? Well, um, among, among other things, Pete, um, you were tr- planted to reach out to kind of the conservative Mennonite community and Amish community. And 
And all of a sudden, because of all the different kinds of people you're bringing in, they're not as comfortable in your church. And we're hearing about it in our church. We think you need to kind of tighten things up a little bit. For, for the good of your outreach. And frankly, we're hearing a lot of clamor back in the, in the mother church too, just so you kind of know about it. Pete thought hard about it. Talked with the chief deacon, who also came out of a Mennonite background. He thought, you know, I think they have something to what they said. So it wasn't long. It took a couple months before Pete decided to really turn that church back into something that looked much more Mennonite in its orientation. So much so that that poor soul that came in uh, shorts and uh, and flip-flops was feeling really uncomfortable in the church. Some of those shorts and flip-flop people no longer came after a period of time. And and others figured that if you're going to be really a good Christian, you got to wear a suit. And if you're a woman, you got to wear something on your head. And... That's the move that Pete chose to make in that city based on what he experienced. If Pete called you up on the phone, you heard the whole story. He told you what he decided to do. What would you tell him? Would you? Yeah. Good, good move in light of your culture. Is that, is that, is that what you tell him? Some people probably would. What do you think Paul would tell him? You see, there is no Pete Johnson that I'm aware of that planted a church in Lancaster City. But there is a Peter who's son of John who does something very similar in Antioch when you come to Galatians chapter 2. So let's, let's talk our way through this passage. And, and here's one of the challenges, okay? I, I want to come back to some of the things that I started out with in that case study, fair enough, at the end. But, but here's the challenge. And it, it, it's so often the challenge when you read the Scriptures, okay? We, we start, actually, I should be over here. Sorry about that. Um, we start in, in the present world, don't we? Because that, that's, that's where we live, But because we want to know how to live, we've got to get back to what the Bible says in the biblical world. So we have to travel back, in this case, to the first century. And we have to step into Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 21 and figure out, okay, what is going on here? And the better we can understand Galatians 2, 11 to 21 in its context, the easier it will be for us to step back into the present world and make valid applications. Does that make sense? So this is what I want you to do with me today, okay? There's really basically two moves in this message. The first move is I want to go back here. And I just want to say, let's understand first century Pete Johnson, what he, re- what he was experiencing with the Apostle Paul then, okay? That's going to take most of the time. But it's the foundation we need so that we can begin thinking about, so what are some of the implications for us living in the first century? Because here's the problem. My guess is if I went around the auditorium and I said, you know, is anybody struggling right now with going back to Judaism? I don't know. Maybe there's one in here, but I doubt it. That's not our issue, is it? That is the kinds of the stuff that's going on here. 
So the better we can understand this, the easier it will be to make valid applications here. So would you come with me in this journey back to the first century as we unpack Galatians 2, 11 to 21? Make sense? So stay with me. Let's enjoy this journey. A couple other things as we look about the journey that that I always kind of struggle with. Um, When and where does this passage take place? Okay, so so we're we're saying, okay, give me the time perspective here and the location. Secondly, who are all the key characters? Because I have to tell you, I tried to reflect most of them in the case study, missed a couple. There's a lot of different moving parts in this story. Who are these different characters, okay? So we want to talk about that. And then we want to talk about, in light of when it takes place and who's being discussed, what is it that Paul actually says? Does that make sense? So that's going to be kind of our our process together. Now, don't let this scare you too much. And just the beauty of it, you're not getting tested on it, so don't worry about any of that. All I want you to see is this. And, 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 and because, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, I, I, I became a Christian when I was eight. And um, I kind of had this view that the way the scripture was written is that God sat Paul down one day and said, okay, pal, get out your quill. We're going to write 13 books. Ah, let's just start with Romans, doesn't really matter. Just call it Romans. And just kind of zip through these 13 books. I don't know, Some. I don't think I picked it up from a Sunday school teacher, but it's just kind of my sense that that's the way the Bible was written. That's not the way the Bible was written. Now, is it all inspired from God, the spirits at work, his people? Of course, of course, of course. But these books are always being written into a particular situation. And so the better we understand the situation and what's going on then, the easier it will be to make the move to our day. So, Here's one of the things you find in, 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 when you look at Galatians and kind of combine it up with, with Acts. So Paul is converted around 32, roughly. Um, he has ministry in Damascus for a while, which we read about in Galatians chapter 1. So, so Galatians chapter 1, where Paul's actually talking about his story, he goes back and he talks about his conversion and this ministry he has for a period of time. Fair enough. And then in the midst of all that, there's this ministry that Paul had, uh, Peter has to the Jews and to Cornelius where Peter's eyes are opened up and saying, look, everybody is saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. You don't have to become a Jew to become a, to a Christian. Okay, fair enough. Peter hears that message too. This church starts in Antioch. And I even have a, let's see, do I have this here? Oh yeah, there it is. I don't know if you can see that real clearly there or not. You probably, you probably can't. But a- Antioch is, is this, can, can you see Antioch? No, you probably can't. It, you, if you go up the Mediterranean Sea, before you take a, a hook left, there's Antioch right on the right. Okay, so that's about where Antioch is. But, but the point is this, I- after the persecution in Acts, you've got Jews running all over, the, they're, they're just, they're, you know, just, They're just running all out of Palestine. And a bunch of them come to Antioch. And while they're in Antioch, they start witnessing to Gentiles. And Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And this is terrific, and everybody's excited about it. But the mother church in Jerusalem is a little bit concerned. So so they send out Barnabas just to check it out. And Barnabas gets up there and goes like, this is really cool. 
mean, these people are coming to faith in Christ. They don't have to be Jews. You can just come to Christ the way you are. Just, I mean, he's just, he's pumped and excited about it. So much so that by that particular time, if I can go back here real quick, by that particular time, it's around 43, 44 AD, Paul has been gone for a while back in the area of Tarshish, and Barnabas thinks to himself, I'm going to go grab Paul, and I'm going to bring him back here because he's the guy to, ma- to really minister here in Antioch with me because he understands the Jew-Gentile thing. So he goes and he gets Paul. They come back, and they have an incredible ministry in Antioch. And while they're there, they hear about a famine that's coming to Jerusalem. And both Paul and Barnabas decide to go down there and to give some money and some help to the believers in Jerusalem from Antioch. And while they're there, they meet up with Peter and James and, and some of the apostles. And, and, and this is the passage uh, that, that James was looking at last week. Uh, not James from the first century, James from the 21st century. Uh, here, but <coughs> and they meet together with, 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 with the, the, those guys. And basically, they agree, look, we're going to largely deal with the Jews. You're going to largely gen- deal with the Gentiles. But there will be some overlap, whatever the case may be. Shake hands, thumbs up, boom. And, and, and they're, all, they're off doing their thing. And through all of that, Paul is thinking to himself, we have got to keep the purity of the gospel. Because when he was down there in Jerusalem, there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of Jews who are professing faith in Christ who are coming up and saying, okay, we agree with you on Jesus, but you can only get to Jesus through Judaism. And Paul and Barnabas would have none of it. No, that's not the way it is. And Peter agrees and James agrees and they go their separate ways. Paul and Barnabas then go on a missionary journey. And they start traveling all around the area of Galatia. And while they're gone, all kinds of people are coming to faith in Christ in Galatia. Many of them, and most of them, are Gentiles. Some Jews, but a lot of Gentiles. They can't wait. So they come back to Antioch after being gone a year, year and a half. They come back to Antioch, and they just they start sharing with them. Look, this is what God is doing with all kinds of people. Anybody can t- come to faith in Christ. And they're, they're just so excited. And the Antioch church is listening. Well, at some particular point, and we don't know exactly when, Peter comes and visits the churches in Antioch. And while he's there, Not to confuse you, but there's just all kinds of moving parts here when it comes to people. But while he's there at Antioch, he's with Jews and Gentiles together. They're having a great time when they get together for for, for meals. He doesn't worry about kosher or any of that kind of stuff because we are all one in Jesus Christ. He gets it. He totally gets it. Until some people visit him from the mother church, Jerusalem. And they're all connected to James, who is really like the senior pastor there at the Jerusalem church. And they come up and they say, look, Peter, um, we're really happy what's going on here, sort of, to a point. We are, because the gospel's for all people. However, 
there's some issues going on back in Jerusalem which you need to be aware of. Peter, lost Jews are becoming more zealous for Judaism as time is going on. And folks, this is the, the mid-40s. We're only about 30 years away from a major Jewish revolt, okay? And you've got whole strands of Judaism that are becoming really zealous and really committed, and, and, and they don't want to see anything but Jewish. And they hear about this, this group of Jesus-follower Jews who are saying, you know what? You don't have to become Jewish to become come into a relationship with God. And that's creating all kinds of problems. And the church in Jerusalem, is part of them, or at least are saying to, 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 to Peter, Peter, can you be careful with your associations? Because if you're eating with those Jews and Gentiles all together, it sounds like you're saying you don't have to be Jewish to have a good relationship with God. And, and Peter, you're offending a lot of people. You're going to impact our evangelism with Jews. And we're feeling persecution and pressure from these lost Jews. So can you do something about it? And Peter thinks, 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 thinks. And in his heart, he's troubled by what he does. But he has so much peer pressure coming on him that he thinks, well, well, maybe I'll just not spend as much time with those Gentiles, at least when it comes to eating. And I'll only eat with Jews, and those Gentiles really can't eat with us unless they only eat what we eat and go through purity and all kinds of other kind of stuff. But I'm doing that because I want to preserve and protect my people back home. So yeah, 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 that, that, I, I think that's what I'm going to do. And, and yes, the gospel is, is for all people. Everybody knows that. But but I'm just going to eat with the Jews. And then the Jewish Christians that he's eating with, they're thinking, well, if Peter does this, we should do this. So they start doing the same thing. And even Barnabas, like Paul's right-hand man, he's watching this whole thing, and he doesn't like to see what's happening with the Gentiles, but he's thinking like, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I mean, I do have a Jewish background too, you know, and, and he's, he's struggling with this whole thing. How do you think you're feeling as a Gentile new believer over here in Antioch? How are you feeling about this time? You're thinking, Peter, what have we done wrong? Why don't you want to eat with us? Is there something wrong with us? Maybe maybe we do have to become Jewish. <laughs> because then Peter will embrace us. And if Peter embraces us, maybe that means that's how God embraces us. Do, do, do you see? Now, now did, did Peter do any of that because he said... I am going to destroy the gospel of Christ. You think that's what he was thinking? Not in your life. Peter was thinking, how can I reach people? How can I protect people? How can I have less persecution? 
but I don't want to hurt anybody. Paul is watching all of this. And that brings us to what he does in chapter 2 and verse 11. Listen to what he says. It's, it's so brilliant. And the better we understand what's happening there, the more effectively we will, we will understand how it can help us in our own lives. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is just another name for Peter, okay? Um, the Aramaic for rock, okay? Um, so he's the first century rocky, if you will. Okay, whatever. But, but, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's really strong. I mean, Peter was seeing this as kind of a pragmatic move. You know, like, you know, Jews and feeling pressure from James and the group there. And, uh, yeah, uh, and Paul's saying, man, this is terrible. Explain, Paul. Paul says, okay, verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, James, remember, was head of the church in Jerusalem, okay? So prior to the coming of certain men from James, <coughs> Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. I mean, there was no problem at all, man. There's just back and no, no problem. But when these individuals came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. This party of the circumcision, who's that? And again, there's some debate on this, but it's probably referring to lost Jews. So in this text, Peter's thinking, if there's a lot of persecution coming on the mother church because they don't like the fact that this Christianity thing is not real Jewish in its nature anymore, uh, how can I help them? Do, Do you see? So he's fearful of lost Jews putting pressure on Christian Jews. So Peter, out of fear, makes a pragmatic decision that actually is a statement of hypocrisy because it violates the centrality of the gospel. Okay? Look at verse 13. Because the problem is, Peter, your sin doesn't just impact you, it impacts others. Look at this. And the rest of the Jews, or the rest of the Christian Jews in Antioch, we might say, joined him in the hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, do you see what drives Paul above everything else? Paul is saying, Peter, your decision is not a good evangelistic move. Your decision is not a, just a helpful, pragmatic approach. Your decision is impacting and violating the very truth of the gospel itself. Because you are unknowing or knowingly saying to those Gentiles, you must add to Jesus Christ something to find acceptance with God. Do you see that? Now, Peter wasn't thinking it all through like that. But Paul is saying, Peter, that's what you're actually doing here. So when I saw this, I said this to Peter in the presence of all. People say, well, maybe he should have talked to Peter Cephas privately. 
No. Because it was already public, wasn't it? He'd already swept all kinds of people. I mean, if Peter's there and Paul is here, going back to this chart, everybody's moving that direction but one guy, and that's Paul. And Paul then is going to confront the guy that's influencing everybody else to say, let's not do this. So that moves Paul then to his argumentation. And here it is in 14 to 21. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. Notice this at the end of verse 14 when he speaks. Listen to this. This is powerful. Paul says, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles. In other words, Peter, you know you don't have to do all this Jewish stuff to find approval with God. So you live like a Gentile in the sense that you don't say, well, I have to do this and I have to do this. No. When you're with a Jew, you do. When you're with a Gentile, you don't. You know it's not necessary. You know that. So if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, if the Jews are here and the Gentiles are there, you, you know because you've gone back and forth very easily. You've done that when you first were here in Antioch. But now all of a sudden you're standing over here telling them, compelling them, a word used two other times in Galatians, earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 6, and both times it's about Judaizers that try to compel people to become Jewish if they're going to become Christians. And Paul says, your acts, maybe not your words, but your acts are doing the same thing. You are compelling them. They don't know what else to do because they're thinking, there must be something wrong with me because... I don't do it like that. So I guess you got to do it like that if you're going to have acceptance with him. Do you see? And so his actions were compelling them to move in this direction. This is a major problem for Paul. So Paul says, let me unpack this for you. So in verses 15 and 16, Paul's going to remind Peter that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone for all people, not by following Jewish law. He says this. I love it. We, who, who are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, you may say, what does he mean by that? Paul is using a little bit of sarcasm here, folks. Because in the ancient world, if you were really a good Jew, you were a Jew in God's favor, and you were not a sinful Gentile out there. Do you see? I mean, I'm Jewish. I'm not a pagan sinful Gentile, something like that. So Paul says, okay, we who, from the perception of many, are Jews by nature and not them, sinners from among the Gentiles, yet We know something else, Peter. We know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Peter, all I'm going to do is tell you what you already know. You're acting like we're really something. We're Jews. And they're sinners. But Peter, you know something. 
you know that the only way you can come to faith in Christ is not by works of the law or any other standard that anybody else establishes. It will never work. Peter, you know that because both you and I got saved the same way as all those Gentiles. We met here and we trusted in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior. We didn't trust in that and we didn't trust in that. It doesn't matter if you're a good old boy. If you're just a good religious person, Jewish person, it doesn't matter if you're a pagan, good-for-nothing, wicked, vile Gentile. Peter, you know everybody's undone. And you know it's not about any of that. It's about coming as you are, saying, I'm a sinner who needs Christ. I, my, I'm proud of my religiosity. I'm just lost in the depth of my sin. It doesn't matter. You're all sinners. Paul says, you know this, Peter. And he goes on to say this in verse 17. Since we are united to Christ and have died to the law, it would be an act of rebellion to live against again un, un, under the law. So listen to what he says. But if... While seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Now, let me explain what he's doing here, because sometimes on the surface you read it, you go like, what is he arguing? So Paul's saying this. Peter, if you look at history, what you'll find in history, and I always have to remember this when I talk about chronology, I want to go left to right, but your left to right is the opposite of my left to right, so I'll try to do it the right way here, right? Because here's your left. Paul says, look, and we're going to look at this more in detail next week, but, but Paul's saying, look, there was this whole era of the law that had as its primary purpose to be a road sign that pointed to say, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Do you see? And, and Paul is saying, we now, in the era where Christ has come, whether Jew or Gentile, we don't want to go back in time under this law era because we're under the era of grace because Christ has come. Do you see? So Paul says, so Peter, are you saying then that if we think you only have to be justified by grace through faith, in, by, by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, if, if, if that's what, what, what I'm actually saying, Peter... Are you saying then that Christ is promoting sin because he's no longer endorsing everybody living under this Old Testament era? Is that what you're saying, Peter? Are, are you therefore then saying Christ is a minister of sin? And, and Peter and Paul both would say, no way, no, no, no. That leads to this. So P Paul goes on to say this, Peter, what Christ has done is the fulfillment of that entire era from the past. We can't step back. That would be like living in the signpost when the signpost is pointing to Christ. So Paul says, Peter, Christ is not the minister of sin because we're not in the era of the law anymore. We're in the era of grace. Matter of fact, if you want to talk about sin, I'll tell you what sin is, Paul would say. Sin is denying the sufficiency of Christ and going back to the old way. Look what he goes on to say. 
4, verse 18. If I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul said, I came to this point in my life where I realized the law will not bring me into a relationship with God. The law's purpose is to point me to the fulfillment, which is Christ. And so, Peter, if you go back, when God has said, I want you to go forward, you're a transgressor of the law and the purposes and the will of God himself. That's really strong. goes on to say this. Let me prove it. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Peter, think about it. What was the purpose of the law in our, in our own lives? As I read the law, Paul said, I found out more and more, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've tried that. It doesn't work. I failed there. And when I do do the right thing in my heart, I still covet. Nothing works. And the law also told me there's a Messiah coming. There's a sacrifice coming. There's, God's going to do a work through his spirit from the heart, from the inside out. God is constantly pointing me there. And in my life, it was through the law itself that I realized I can't. And it was through the law that I learned one who is coming who can. Do you see? And Paul said, Peter, we can't go back because in our own experience, that very law pushes us to come here. And then Paul says this, it's not only that the law pushed me here, but let me talk to you about the beauty of what it means to be here in Christ. And this is what he says. And this, of all the verses in this passage, this, this is the one that we all know and have memorized for good reason. But listen to what it says. Paul says, I died to the law. I'm here. What is here? I have been crucified with Christ. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, let me talk to you about this time frame in which I find myself. I've been crucified with Christ. Oh, does that mean like Paul's dead? No. It means he has been so connected to the crucifixion of Christ that what Christ did on the cross counted for Paul. So, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I am so united to him that he's going to go on to say this, but rather Christ lives in me. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what the Christian life is all about? The Christian life is all about falling on your knees and saying, I am done, I am lost. The law, my own standards that I set up that I could never keep, they kept telling me condemned, condemned, condemned. But that same law said, but there is one coming, but there is one coming, but there is one coming. And now he has come, and I have been united to Christ and to his death, burial, and resurrection. And so my sins are forgiven. And the life I now live is a life in which he relationally lives with me. Don't you love that? How about if the Christian life was all about, okay, 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 now this is what I want you to do. I will save you, and then you're on your own. I'll see you in 50, 60 years. How would that work? It'd be pretty bad, folks. He doesn't say that. He says, not only do I justify you, not only do I declare that you are righteous. 
You are, because you're so united to Christ, you're seen through Christ. The judgment's already been done. You're safe, man. Yeah, but I'm going to continue to sin. They're all forgiven, man. They're done. You are justified. And the one who is justified is the one who actually lives in me. Positionally forgiven me. Relationally with me. I love it, man. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I think the word Paul used the word flesh here for a particular reason. Sometimes flesh can be very, very negative. Sometimes the word flesh just means weakness. And I think he's using it that way here. And I think he's saying this. This life now that I am seeking to live before God in a way that honors him, the problem is I'm living it in my flesh. And you know what? I am so weak. I'm so easily tempted. I just struggle. It's hard. Oh, I did it again. Oh, I can't believe it. You know what I'm saying? So Paul says, you know what? Christ is with me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Don't you love that? In my most distraught moments, in the times when I just feel overwhelmed with sin and temptation, Jesus is there. And he calls me to trust him, to go to him, to allow him to reveal what's going on in my heart. Just everything is Jesus. And and as I take it to him, the thing I keep remembering is Jesus loves me, this I know, for Galatians 2.20 tells me so. Right? Because this is the one who died for me and gave himself for me. And Paul says, Peter, that's what we believe. Why would you want to teach anything that takes them back to an error that is basically saying, you can't and you better wait till the better stuff comes. And now the best has come. And you know him. And you want to teach the Gentiles by, the, by your actions that we should go back to that? What are you thinking? It's all about Christ who has positionally saved me, who is relationally with me, who has clearly loved me, and who is transforming me by the Spirit as I continue to stay related to him until I end up into his presence one day. Peter, that's Christianity. Your acts, for whatever way you might try to justify, is not teaching that. Let me tell you one other thing real quick, Peter, while we're on it. Verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let me tell you something else, Peter. If your actions tell people they need to go back here, then you have just attacked God's ultimate expression of grace in humanity. You are saying Christ's death, which forgives all sins, which brings in this new era, which brings all kinds of people together, 
you're telling me that's not good enough. And Peter, I will never support you when you're against the grace of God. Now, chapter 3 is going to move into something different. Did you ever wonder what happened with Peter? I mean, that's pretty strong stuff. I mean, like, I'm reading along this, I'm going like, okay, and then what did Peter say? Right? Aren't you thinking that? Galatians doesn't tell us. But you know where we get our answer? There is, oh, I'm not there. There is, following this whole challenge in Galatians 2, this incident with Peter, you find, it's a third one down there from the bottom. And, 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 and just so you know what Paul is facing when he writes the book of Galatians, this issue had just happened not too long before probably with Peter. So he's got pressure coming up that direction. And you've got other Jews that are traveling around and redefining what Paul has done in the churches he's established in his first missionary journey. And they're saying, you've got to become Jewish if you're going to become a Christian. So Paul is getting it from everywhere. It's at his church in Antioch. Oh, he's just feeling the pressure. So he sits down and he writes this book to them and recounts what's going on and says, Christ is all you need. Don't go back to any of these things. And, and, and after writing the book of Galatians, Paul and Barnabas make a trip all the way down to Jerusalem to talk about this issue with all the apostles. And when they get there, Peter is there. And after Paul and Barnabas share what they're sharing, Peter stands up before everybody and he says, Paul is right. And James stands up before everybody and says, Paul and Barnabas are right. We must protect the gospel. And so what Paul did here, God used in the entire church. So, you say, Finkbinder, what's the point? Not to get too wordy, but here you go. Since you have been positionally justified in Christ, and now I'm saying that to people that know Jesus, okay? You positionally, I mean, you may look at me right now and you say, like, Finkbinder, you sin every day. You got it. I got it. All right, you're right, you're right. I, I seek to repent of it, but yes, you're right, you're right. But positionally, God looks at me and says, Finkbinder, is righteous. Because of me? No way! Because I'm united to the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Since you have been positionally justified in Christ and relationally united to Christ by faith in Christ. I mean, Jesus is with me. Boldly live out the gospel of Christ so as to never violate our oneness in Christ by adding to the sufficiency in Christ. Okay. You said, Fink Barney, you're going to talk about our day. All right. So let me talk about our day. And I, I, with all these things, there's always caveats. You always have to say, no, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this. So, but here we go. We'll step in where angels fear to tread. But that's okay. What are some ways in which we might be able to do this in our day? Because like I said, probably nobody in here is saying like, you know, I'm thinking about going back to Jewish law. You know, that's not where we're at. But what are some ways in which this kind of can kind of slip in? 
James had talked about, I think, one last week on baptismal regeneration, so I'll stay away from that one. Here's three. Our personal experience. Here's what I mean. Um, I know people, when they've come to faith in Christ, it was a highly emotional, incredible experience. I mean, just it's just like a rocket shot off. And man, when they talk to you about that experience and all the things that were accompanying them, you're going, wow, that thing's wild. Then I talk to other people, and they tell me they came to Christ, and it was very quiet. And um, didn't even tell anybody about it for two or three weeks. But man, do they love Jesus. And you're going like, uh, okay. What's the common element? Faith in Christ. I want to be very careful that I don't take my experience and say, but you've got to have this kind of did, 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 did. No, 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 no. What you need is to cry, trust in Christ alone. That's what you need. And sometimes in certain circles, there are these attachments that are placed with our experience of coming to faith in Christ. If you don't have this, you're not it. It's like, folks, that is dangerous. That is dangerous, and it, it makes me, it, it, it sounds like people are saying Christ is not sufficient because it must be Christ plus. If somebody has trusted Christ, they have the Spirit. That's the experience of everybody that trusts Christ. It may not manifest itself in the exact same way. Look at their life and see what God is doing. Number two, our personal standards would be another challenge. Now, I want to be careful here. Because don't hear me saying, oh, Finkbeiner's saying it doesn't matter how you live. I don't believe that at all. I, I believe by the Spirit, you should be evaluating everything you do and saying, God, I want to glorify in everything I do. Jesus, you're with me. How do I honor you now? I love you. You're my Lord. What's that look like? That should be how we live. But a particular personal standard that I take for my life may be different than you take for your life. I've, I've um, dealt with, give me an example. I, I dealt with men in the past who have, and not, not the too distant past, who struggle with pornography. And, and, and sometimes they've chosen to take some really drastic measures like no computer in their house at all. Which, which to us sounds like bizarre. Like, I, who would do anything like that? How can you live in this culture and not have a computer or something like that? But that's the standard that they've actually taken. And I have no problem with what they've done at all if they've, if they've done that before God because they think that's appropriate. Here's what I would have a problem with. If I then get on a bandwagon or they get on a bandwagon and say, no computers for anybody. Oh, no, 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 wait a second. You're then saying your personal application of a principle has to be everybody's same application of that principle. And if you don't, you canonize your application and therefore say to be a good Christian, you have to have that. That's a problem, folks. Now, if you want to talk about the fact that we should be pure, I'm all over that one. Let's talk about it and see what that looks like in our lives. I'm all for it. We should talk about love and purity and holiness and all that stuff. It's all through the scriptures. But be very careful to take a personal standard and canonize it. Or a preference and canonize it for all. Does that make sense? 
That's right. Sometimes people in the church will come up and we'll, we'll get people will talk to us about different things. And if you want to talk to us about these things, it's great. We love you and it's all good stuff. Okay. But people will say something like, hey, you know, think we need to pull back here? I need, think we need to push ahead there? You know, and, and, and pastors are here on both sides of this stuff and try to balance the whole thing out. And, and, and I, I get that. Um, <laughs> but sometimes what people are saying, not always, in all fairness, but sometimes what people are saying is, I think everybody has to have it just the way I think it should be applied. And that's where we have to be careful. Let me give you one more. I was really hesitant about this one, but I thought I'd throw it out. Our political affiliations. Okay. I'll be honest with you, I'm Republican, okay? But I don't think you have to become, be a Republican to be a Christian. Do you? Long before there was a Republican or Democratic Party, God was. And actually, he kind of liked monarchies, to be honest with you. But anyway, that's a whole other one. Theocracies in particular. But, 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 and, and I'm happy to have all the debates, but you know what I don't want? And, and we, we, it's fine to engage. It's fine. I mean, sometimes God is left of us, and sometimes he's right of us politically. That's the truth, okay? But anyway. But here's what troubles me. I do not want somebody coming into the door of this church and feeling uncomfortable because they think you have to have a particular political affiliation to really be a good Christian and be part of this church. That's not a good thing, folks. It's not a good thing. And we don't mean it, in a, nobody means it in a bad way, okay? And we can engage in all the discussions. We should do that. We're open. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I get that. But be careful. Be careful. So they, they were just three examples. There could be more. That's probably enough to get me in trouble. Um, does it make sense, though? Do, do we really think about it. Because what I want you to go away with is this, and I tried to simplify it. Since you embrace the gospel of Christ, boldly live it out without adding to it. I think that's the point. And I don't want to add any of these things to it. I, I, I just want to be absolutely consumed with Christ. What he's done for me. The union that he's brought. The fact that he's here. That he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. I can't believe it, but it's true. And I just want to live under his lordship. Keep it simple. And we can have all the other debates and all that kind of stuff, but don't lose the core. Father, this is not an easy passage, but boy, it's a good passage. Would you, would you help us as a church to be so centered on Christ that everything else we talk about is an outworking of that rich relationship with him. And Father, that we spend the bulk of our time sharing with one another how thankful we are that we are in Christ, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, and that we can live with Christ by faith until we see him face to face one day. Father, may we be obsessed with him. In Christ's name I pray, amen.